If you love Sports Bazaar, why wouldn't you want to sign up to Bazaar Plus, our membership program, for even more episodes? Just go to the link in the show notes to sign up. It's Sports Bazaar. There's a lot to like in this story. It's getting more ridiculous as it goes on. The hunt for the weirdest. What are you talking about? Are you serious? What? So many questions. Okay, I'm going to have to stop you here. <laughs> Strangers. Unflattering, but essentially accurate. I'm quite exhausted. <laughs> it's going to get stranger and stranger. Most unbelievable. If you wrote this as a movie, people wouldn't believe Stories it. Stories to ever occur. An epic tale of woe, joy, nutty behaviour. The fact that it's not more well known is just the strangest thing. In the world of sport. This is going to get juicy. Here is it. We should open a window or something. <laughs> Spots bizarre. How many testicles did he have? Eight. Found <laughs> running naked down a major street in Chicago. <laughs> this, of course, is the last unorganised crime and boxing of Crosstoe. Got up in a press conference. We're here to announce we've swapped our wives. What is going on? It's time for the leaders of the hunt. Got household names for me. It's surely a red flag. It's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome back to Sports Bazaar, the second in our, well, what do we call it, our feature of the Tour de France. You blew me away in our last episode. It had it all. Jimmy yeah. Sweeps, itching powder, <laughs> oysters, <laughs> oysters, some guy with a cork in his mouth <laughs> being towed along by cars. It just had the lot. I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, thank you for bringing it to my attention. No, well, this is that we did the 1903-1904 Tour de France, the first two ever held. And they were cheating from the get-go. There was cheating, and, and as we learned in those two races, no winner that wasn't really cheating in yeah. some way. So we're, yeah. we're away. Now, when you think Tour de France, though, you really think doping. Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, we, we've the high watermark che- of cheating uh, and doping is the Tour de France. It's cycling yeah. and it's Lance Armstrong and it's – why is it cycling? Can you tell me why well, it's well, cycling? Well, this is the thing. So you kind of look at it all and, you know, and I'd love to say it's because cyclists have no morals. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. the real reason is it's pure logic. Sports like athletics – cycling, things like this that often come down to seconds or, you know, sort of they, they tend to be, they're very mechanical. They're, they tend to have more impact if you dope. And I'll give you a reason why cycling. But cycling is the number one for doping. If you're going to dope, cycling is the one to do and, it. And why? Because quite simply, let's start with the tour just generally yeah. before we get to cycling anyway. People don't understand how grueling the Tour de France is. So the uh. Tour de France is... Anyone that can complete the Tour de France in the time these guys complete the Tour de France is a freak, even if they're on every drug on the planet. They could pump you and I. So I couldn't just get on the gear and and go out there and take on the Pyrenees. No. So the first thing with doping and the Tour de France, so before we even get to cycling, is people got to understand just how hard the Tour de France is. So the Tour de France, it's the modern one as it is now, is 21 day-long stages. I couldn't think of anything worse, by the way. Where you ride the whole day. It's spread over 23 days. So you're going to get a couple of rest days in the whole thing. And you cover... 3,500 kilometres. So that's mm. 2,175 miles. So the first thing is it's an epic ride that you've just sure. got to do, right? Then you've got to consider the flat parts of the race. So we, everyone knows the mountain bits and think, well, the yeah. mountain bits are the hard bit. Well, they are, but the flat's also hard because riders have to maintain, and it's a brutal average speed that most riders couldn't do, which is 45 kilometres. That's their average speed for most, of the, yeah, <laughs> for most of it. And then they've got to go for the last five to 10 kilometres, they've got to go up to 60 k's and maintain it mm. for like for up to 10 kilometres. So this is just enormous. And then at the very end, they sprint at the end of all that, 
up to speeds of 80 kilometres an hour. So to do that, you got to work out how much power you need to produce to get to those speeds and maintain it. It's a bit of maths, but it'll show how well, yeah, shockingly how good they are. you got the tank. Well, cycling is one sport where you can easily measure one thing, which is because they're essentially putting power into a machine. Yes. Pedaling. You can... Don't talk to me like I'm a child, by the way. <laughs> it's like explaining <laughs> I, this to a I, five-year-old. You won't be able to see this if you listen to this on the podcast, but <laughs> You're I made the it? motion of pedals <laughs> then to you. I'm not 100% sure you've seen a bike before, Mick. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not convinced. It's my natural enemy. <laughs> yeah, I'm not convinced. Like if I was explaining a pub to you, I wouldn't oh, be no. making hand gestures. Now, so on the, <laughs> so they can actually measure how much wattage yep. a cyclist puts out over the course of the, a race. And so, how do they do that? Well, well they can measure thing on the, Well, on because the eventually the pedal, which I'm miming to you again, yes. is like a dynamo. It, how fast it spins, that's how any electrical motor works, you know, any motor works. It's like an episode but, of the Curiosity <laughs> Show now, isn't it? Yeah, they can measure that output, right? So they, okay. So cool. unlike a lot of other sports, with a bike you just know how much and you can actually put a machine and measure the wattage output by how fast they're pedalling, right? On these bikes, is it like a black box recorder? Can they, at the end of a stage, look at it yeah, at they the can. data they, they like often, they do in a Formula yeah, One well, car? Yeah, well, they often or, have um, things on them as well, so they can, you know, on their bodies. Like, you can do this, like, with a lot of Apple Watches and stuff now, right? Like, this, yeah. this stuff is telemetry, output, calories burnt, everything they measure. What about on, like, an old person's motorised scooter? <laughs> Could you collect the data <laughs> on? Now that would be a, a tour de France. Down, down the shops. <laughs> oh, you'd, that should be like on the undercard. Yeah, that's Don't right. Don't you reckon? As a warm up event. No, they sent them off first, like four to five days before. In a handicap, like the store gift. Yeah. Absolutely. So they get a two and a half day head start. Yeah, that is your uh, handicapping. <laughs> then it's scooters. Then it's e-scooters. E-scooters. <laughs> oh my god! Five with the bikes coming. Fun. A unicycle. Unicycle. Unicycles last. I like the Benny Farthing racing. I we missed the beat that not taking off. The falls off them would just be worth. I would like to see Penny Farthing races at a velodrome. Yeah, that would be fun. Just the chaos. Can you imagine? You know, you know the bit where they stall them up the top. I reckon and then the first death to... might put everyone off in a bit. <laughs> For the Tour de France races, so as long as the distance, I mean, just to. Keep the speeds you need to be competitive. Right. You need to produce between 2,000 and 2,500 watts, right? Done. Now, how does that compare to a normal fit person on a bike? Fit person, not you and I, fit person, <laughs> right? Someone who rides regularly on the weekends yeah. of that. They usually, a, a man on a bike, a fit bloke on a bike yeah. will pull 800 watts and a fit wow. woman will do 600 watts. So a Tour de France person's doing 2,500 2, watts. Jeez. So they're not just a little bit better. They're in another universe. This is without drugs. You know, you add the drugs in. Then the riders also have to tackle the mountains, which you've got to go up as high as 250 metres above sea level and often you have multiple ascents. Now, at that height, you get altitude sickness and lack of oxygen reduces your capacity That's when by they 15%. undo their, ju- That's their tops, undo their jacket. Your favourite I love it. So... To do those mountain climbs, you need to output 450 watts while you're going up them, which is much harder because you're on that big steep. And you've got to hold that 450 watts of output for like 30 to 60 minutes. Now, the best cyclists who are amateurs could do that between 30 and 120 seconds. All right. The Tour de France guys are doing it for up to an hour. This is just how much better. Now, that energy output means that you consume 6,000 calories per day Yep. Right? The average human is 3,000 calories per day. So, wow. like, they're doing double what, what normal. I mean, you and I eat 6,000 a day, but, but we're carb-loading. 
<laughs> for the post-show yeah. tricks. So they are in an elite category. They're for everything and power, output, everything. But the Tour de France is asking the human body to do something that is on the very outer cusp of what the human body can really do yeah. on its own. So you're already at the point where to really do it, it's to do it without any drugs or any assistance, yeah. almost impossible almost to begin impossible. with. So there's one reason of the doping. Just quickly, you mentioned the Apple Watches before. Yeah. Do you know I famously took 43 steps in one day? <laughs> I'm not joking. No. You, no, know, no. I, you don't need to tell me you're joking. Yeah. I'm bung out with you. And I tried to work it because I was looking at the data and it goes, a 24-hour period, 43 steps. And I've worked it out. It was from my couch to the toilet and to the bar fridge to the couch. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it was while I was watching the Tour de France. I don't think this is... 43 as, steps. I don't think this is a surprising fact as you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm doping. I had to... Yeah. And you was, those and you, last seven steps, I probably s- wouldn't have got. So the first thing I'd say about Tour de France is like you're on the edge of really what humans can do. So doping <laughs> is kind of like a lot. Yeah, okay. A bit like you and the couch. The second thing is because it's so simplistic, aside from like some of the team tactics which they all do for wind resistance and the quality of the bikes, which are all fairly similar. Yes. The really only thing that separates any cyclist from another is how much power they can output, right? So if you can boost that power, it has a difference. And this is why really cheating happens more than any other reason the Tour de France and doping does, is because the smallest increase in power makes a huge difference in your results. The Tour de France is so close. Right. So to give you an example, Chris Froome won in Great Britain for 2015. He ran the race in 84 hours, 46 minutes and 14 seconds. If the 16th place cyclist, who was Thibault Pinoir of France, had improved his power output by just 1%, just 1% his power, he'd have come first by 12 minutes. He'd have gone from 16 to first by 12 minutes if he just improved his power output by 1%. So in cycling, now you take a footy team, a Premier League team, a gridiron team, and you improve the worst team in the league by 1%, they're not winning the Super Bowl. They're not winning the league. It's like Tim Bowling. There's probably no... It's, it's almost exactly the same. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, would, what would help in temping bowling? What would help? Yeah. Beta blockers, beta probably blockers. to steady your hands. Yeah, that would be the one to take a no The first drag sheet at the Olympics was a shooter. Yeah, they, they used to take them all the time too. No, the first no, one was he, actually, he was drunk. The first, and he was drunk. He, well, he, he was on alcohol. First drug ever knowingly taken was strychnine. Um, in the 904 marathon. The big call. But it, it wasn't banned. So it wasn't the first drug cheat because it was all legal back then. And the same is going to be the true with the Tour de France. So shooting, I thought it was a shooter who was found to have taken alcohol because mm. that, again, slows he down He was the first habit. band. Huh. Yeah, so he was the first And band. they knew he was drunk because he was shooting at road signs. <laughs> <laughs> and he was on his bus. Yeah, 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 he did a drive-by. He didn't know it was the Olympics. <laughs> and it was a sawn-off. He had a sawn-off. Yeah. Uh, so taking lots of drugs in football, yeah. baseball, something, it, it, well, baseball does, but some of those, it doesn't make, for a team, it doesn't make as big a difference. Being 1% better. In Tour de France, being 1% better is the difference between 16th and winning by a mile, like by 12 minutes. It's a right. huge yeah. difference. So that's why they do it. So it's, it's, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I'm just saying it makes a lot of logic why they do it. It sounds like you're excusing their behaviour. <laughs> it does sound like that a lot. It sounds like you're, you're pro-doping. <laughs> I'm very, uh, very pro-doping. I wish I had some doping now. Is, uh, there, anyway. is there different ways of doing it or are they all employing the same techniques? No, it's changed. So 
let's go back to even before the tour. De, so cycling, because of this reason, and it's so tough, it always had this doping thing. Even before the Tour de France, it had all sorts of problems with cycling. One of the earliest races, they were known to put in anything in their bodies and it was all legal too. So unlike now. Really? It was totally legal. So in the late 19th century, for example, there's an American cyclist who's a champion called Major Taylor. Isn't that a great American name? I love it. That's his actual name. It's not a title. He's racing in New York and he was on such a cocktail of drugs that he started to hallucinate (laughs) and stop raiding. And when asked why he couldn't keep racing, he was like equivalent of a velodrome sort of yeah. thing. He said, I cannot go on with safety for there is a man chasing me around the ring with a knife in his hand. <laughs> Everyone looks around, there's no one. And it was all the drugs, That's right? That's like the time Robert Downey Jr. was seen at an intersection going bonkers. Yeah. And uh, a traffic stopped and I said, what's going on? He goes, I'm being attacked by bats. <laughs> <laughs> It's always the ones, actors, least uses Actually, it. I think he was naked. I think he was naked in a, I mean, we've all done it. Yeah. We've but all in, driven in a, naked while being attacked by uh, bat bombs drugs. Uh, attacked by imaginary bats. So the start of the tour, from the very big early ones, enough. they were all on caffeine, strychnine, cocaine and alcohol from the first tours. So all like taking rider. Them. Huge quantities of alcohol because drinking wine just dulls the pain and wine remained part of the Tour de France for the riders up until the 60s. Until the 60s, they stopped drinking the wine. This all happened and no one reported on it. Was there a a red wine or a white wine? Or is there a white wine in the day? (laughs) Transitioning transitioning to red. You have a rose in the the, dusk starts to fall. (laughs) It also depends if you're having fish or oysters. Wow. Like if you're pairing it with oysters, bubbles. Well, you're in France, only in the Champagne region. (laughs) Maybe that you have to have a wine that's indigenous to the region. You're You're, you're matching your wines to to the the region. The The French would do that. The French, the wine pairing at the stage. I'm sure people will contact us and tell us this is true. I'm sure there are people who watch the Tour de France and pair wines to the region the race is currently in. I'm positive. Of course they do. We should do that this year. Do we need an excuse to pair wines? Less than 43 steps, I'm in. (laughs) Um, That would be fun. That would be fun. Uh, So anyway, the first time the public actually became aware, because you got to remember it's not illegal, right? No one cares about (laughs) if you're doping, you're doping. No one cares, right? Or drinking or whatever. No no one's thinking about it. So the first time the public sort of got an insight, and the reason people were happy, the riders were starting it, like would tell because it's not illegal. It's completely legal to do, do stuff. So first time the public actually get a sense that drugs what are a used time to the live, tour. By the I know, way. I know. It was such a nanny state now. Was the brothers Francois and Henri Pellisset. Henri had won the 1923 tour and they both took a journalist through their bags who was doing a story on them <laughs> while they were competing in the 1924 tour to France. Yeah. They pulled out various packages. They, and this is a quote from them. They said to the journal, because it was all printed up because they didn't get it. They said, cocaine to go in our eyes, chloroform to for our gums, and do you want to see these pills? We keep going on dynamite. In the evenings, we dance around our rooms instead of sleeping. Okay, so a couple of things. So that's a direct there. quote in the actual paper. Why would cocaine help your eyes? They put it in their eyes. Why? I don't know. It keeps them alert. You'd be of shaky vision, wouldn't you? you well, they, they now reckon like cocaine Cylon. is not a particularly yeah, good... <laughs> Uh, enhancing drug. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're a silent. Well, what are you doing? So, sorry, what was the so other one? So they ones? had chloroform. That's chloroform. Well, it knocks you out. Yeah, I know. And then sure, they would, Surely if you want to go to sleep. I think it's to numb bits because they get sore gums and stuff, so they numb it. Who walks around with chloroform in a bag if you're not I reckon there's a, a few guys killer. I've known that I went to high school with. 
<laughs> pulling out all these. This they, is they, crazy. they show all the journalists this. And you got to remember, the authorities don't go, how dare you do this interview, mm. right? Because the authorities aren't turning a blind eye. It's legal to the point where in the 1930 Tour de France rule book, given every single rider, it reminds them in the rule book that drugs would not be provided by the organisers. And fair call, so, <laughs> so it actually says, take a remember stand. to bring your own drugs. Like like a party at your like house. Your bag. Like your bag. Like, like, they're basically drug mules. They're, they're like saying, they're, yeah, bring your own drugs. Don't, we're not going to provide you drugs. You have to provide them. Now, often, and this is still all legal, riders would often then go down from tainted drugs en masse. So half the peloton would suddenly oh, like, because, and again. the excuse that was always given to the media was that they had eaten bad fish. <laughs> so it's how a bunch of riders have got sick because it's bad fish to the point where it happened so much that bad fish became code in the media for drug doping scandal. Fishes on the pong again. Yeah. So then the next major shift in the tour came the arrival of amphetamines. Yeah, stay off the cod. Stay off the cod. The the amphetamines come along. So the Nazis are the ones that in World War II really um, use a lot of amphetamines when they do their blitzkrieg. They didn't do a lot of good. Well, Hitler was on a lot of amphetamines in the end. I've always maintained he made some bad decisions. (laughs) You know, they so, don't get enough credit for that. Yeah, the Nazis really pioneered a lot of the use of speed and amphetamines and then even the British and the Americans use it often with their pilots and things like this. So, yeah, the, so the So the amphetamine industry really got going. But, of course, when the war finished and, you know, the soldiers <laughs> don't need it, of course, who steps in? Both the public yeah. and athletes. Do you know a lot of fighter pilots when in their mess yeah. they'll play table tennis because table tennis apparently is hand-eye, Keep quick, their eye high in. twitch. Yeah. Either that or just whack some cocaine <laughs> on <laughs> you your just, eyeballs. But that's true. So they would yeah. take take drugs and play table tennis. Yeah, and, and they often just took it to keep them awake. And the cycle- I do that. I just don't play it. <laughs> you fly don't play planes. Tennis. You've got those 43 steps to cover <laughs> off. Like, table tennis. Who, tour- that's a, is that surprising to you? Not really. Well, there's a great story about Michael Jordan. Yes, and please. table tennis, where highly competitive, I believe. Right there, and it's in the Jordan rules that book that was that famous mm. book about him. And, and Jordan was losing the like their backup center, who was, was the only guy he couldn't beat at table yeah. tennis, right? And it was driving him mad <laughs> that he because he was so competitive. Yeah. Like this guy's at this point the greatest basketball that's ever lived, and he he's all he's focused on is that he can't beat the backup center at table <laughs> tennis. And one of his teammates tells this story in the book that he came down at this hotel at three in the morning because he couldn't sleep and he hears a table tennis game going so he wanders into the rec room and Michael Jordan's put one end of the table tennis p- table up and he's just playing against himself practicing. Unbelievable. Until he could beat this guy at three in the morning. They've got a game <laughs> the it. next day. There was drug cheating in the table tennis. Is that for another time? That's for another time. Well, yeah, there's, a great, there's some great table tennis one. So amphetamines have come in. So in a television interview, the winner of the tour in 1949 and 1952, Fasto Copy, mm. he admits openly that he had used a special cocktail he called La Bomba. <laughs> which he put in his water bottles, right? So La Bomba. That sounds... Now, do you want to know what's in La Bomba? Please. It contained amphetamines, caffeine, opiates, ether, cocaine, chloroform and alcohol. Jesus! <laughs> Seriously. Wow. So that's Shaken just, over ice. <laughs> that's there right. it was. I think in a suburban nightclub I've had that um, cocktail. Right. Um, this is where I say, like, Lance Armstrong is not some outlier. Like, no. he's the winner of the 49-52 Tour de France, just admitting on publicly I take this as my thing, La Bomba. They said, when do you use it? And he said, only when I have to. The journalist said, 
when's that? When do you have to use it? And he said, almost all the time. <laughs> These are their public comments. So, These aren't like It's not like secret. Popeye. It's not like, no, you're and not it's those... not like after they retire they tell these stories. It's like they're telling them while they're winning Tour de France. It's like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, great. So here's how they're loaned. Five-time tour champion, 1957, 61 to 64, Jacques Onsetel. He would inject morphine to dull the pain in his body and then take amphetamines to prevent the lethargic effects of the morphine. Makes sense. Yeah, you got to balance uppers and downers, you mm-hmm. know. That's a balanced diet to do morphine and amphetamines. So he once said, you would have to be an imbecile or a crook (laughs) to imagine a professional cyclist who races for 235 days a year can hold the pace without stimulants. So he's just saying, this is rife, everyone's doing it, it is ridiculous. Get on board. He also said, for 50 years, bike racers have been taking stimulants. Obviously, we can do without them in a race, but then we would be hurdle about 15 miles an hour instead of 25. Since we're constantly asked to go faster and to make even greater efforts, we're obliged to take stimulants. So he's just it very like similar, right? He's like, we're giving the people what they want. Yeah, and everyone's taking them. So if we're going to we'll compete. Yeah. Other ones use analgesics to manage their pain. So these like opiates, opioids and things like that to stop you being in pain because it's like on the edge. That's when the hallucinations start, yeah. yeah. The <laughs> dangers right. of these drugs came like 1960 tour. Roger Revere, he was going down uh, one of the mountains. He went off the road and into a ravine. He <laughs> broke his back and had to be helicoptered out. Wow. And he blamed his mechanic saying his brakes had failed, but the doctors found that he had a variety of drugs, and they reckoned that the drugs numbed his fingers so he couldn't do the brake levers. Well, you know their official finding, <laughs> bad fish. Bad <laughs> fish. Just, they said it's not great yeah, today. So he'd later admit he also took drugs and amphetamines as well. So they think he took so much drugs he couldn't work the brakes anymore. He couldn't anymore. feel his fingers. He couldn't feel them, so he couldn't do oh, the brakes. Wow. That's how he came up. That was sort of like, <laughs> he, he, he almost died and ended up in wheelchair. So that was sort of a wake-up call that they might need to do something about yeah. illicit drugs. We wanted to rein this in. Yeah, so it's a 960, but they still went, yeah, I think we're okay. True. Sure. I don't think we need to ban it. This time, most teams start to have someone called a soigneur, who is someone who helps with transportation and supplies. A mule. But basically, it becomes the person responsible for providing drugs. Oh, so it's now an official position. It's, a, it's pretty much an official position <laughs> on their team. They're sought out for their expertise in mixing drugs. So they follow the teams around. Can you, have, can you employ one? Well, now they call them like they're just another team member. But for a long time, you had a soigneur. And their whole thing was they would help with logistics, drive things around, but the, their real job yeah. was, and a lot of them were really a good. Swanier. Yeah. It's no, I'd, a like, nice I'd like a swanier and a Sherpa. <laughs> have you ever wanted to just have a Sherpa like in real life? Like someone who just carries things Some around carries for things. you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Slab home for the pub or you. <laughs> You know, stuff, gets your stuff. There's one reason. 43 steps here. I think we're in big agreement we'd like to have staff. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everyone. I hope you don't mind. I bought my swan year. The swan year is going to hang out. Do you guys need anything? (laughs) Which one's the Sherpa (laughs) and which one's the swan year again? Who do I get to carry and who do I get the drugs from? The Sherpa's been spending too much time with the swan year. (laughs) This game's really dropped. So we're still, it's still legal and still now legal. it's a proper position. Well, then in the 1962 tour, and this started happening a lot because you'd have these swan years, sometimes they'd work for one team, but others would work for numerous cyclists or numerous okay. teams. If they stuffed up the mixing of their drugs, they all went down. So in the 1962 tour, 20 riders go down from an unknown illness and straight away bad fish is given us the reason. 
<laughs> but really they'd all had the same concoction from the same swan year. And the, the organisers yeah. know this, right? So all these things come home. Tour organisers decide we've got, we've got to do something. This is after the 62 tour because behind the scenes doctors, the real doctors, not the swan years, <laughs> they're saving riders' lives every year from drug-related crashes. During the, the Tour de France. The tour. But it's just covered up. No uh, one's, overdoses or anything like that is or is it overdo- just accidents? But, no, both. Overdoses, people falling off bikes, people passing out, heart attacks, the whole lot. Like it's just a mess behind the scenes because you've got it these guys. It sounds like a Mardi Gras or something. It sounds yeah. like a, a hard sporting event. Yeah, it's just everyone's on drugs and they're trying to do something that's almost impossible to do at a speed that is almost impossible to sustain. Yeah. And then funnily enough, it's, it's not all going well. And this is what's amazing how late this is. On the 1st of June, 1965, performance-enhancing drugs become illegal in the Tour de France. 1965. Right, and yeah. was there an incident or they just went, enough's enough? No, that was all the ones, there was all these things happening. So they'd had several and it was 62 where 20 riders all go down with this illness of bad fish. That was when they started to go, oh, this is starting to look yeah, bad. No. But then also they were having doctors say to them all the time, the organisers, we're saving people's lives every year. Someone's going to die. Okay. You need to do something about so this. So this is a very important, pivotal moment in the history of the Tour de France. For, for the, so, so 1966 is the first clean, legal... Uh, bu- <laughs> Jesus. Let me ask you, Mick, can you, what do you reckon? Bring this one, yes. <laughs> do, you, do you reckon the writers appreciated this bear? Yeah, no, I don't reckon they'd see the funny side, to be honest. So the first way well, yeah, they bring in this rule and they say, 1st of June, 1965, performance enhancing drugs are banned. Do they do any testing? No, nah, they do none. They didn't even engage. They didn't even engage. They didn't do any testing. They didn't search anyone. They did nothing. It was just technically illegal, but it was like our, so all our, that had changed. Our public stances. Is, it's illegal. It's illegal. But they put zero effort into actually finding out if anyone was using them. They just told them they shouldn't. <laughs> They told them it was illegal, but they didn't do yeah. anything. So it's like saying, we'll change this law, but we're not going to enforce it. That's basically what happened. In 1966, though, drug testing finally arrived. On the eighth stage, rider Raymond Polydor was the first ever Tour de France rider to have to give a urine sample. And the riders all decide as a group, this is degrading, an invasion of their privacy. So the very next day, not long after the start of the stage, they wall walked for five minutes pushing their bikes in protest. <laughs> Because of drug testing. It's like a tools down. The organisers end testing for the year <laughs> straight away. They go, all right, we'll, we won't do it anymore. Wow. The next year, the tour started, most riders just outright refused to be tested. <laughs> it's not that no, they thanks. just go, nah, not doing it. And the organisers go, well, we can't suspend all of you. So they just let them not get tested. They're not running a tight ship, They're not these guys. We're three years into the ban and basically no one's been suspended, no one's really been properly tested and they just give up, right? <laughs> so 1967 <laughs> is the moment this all changes in reality. So the leader of the British team, Tom Simpson, he's three kilometres from the top of one of these mountains and he just collapsed. And he'd been struggling already earlier in the day because he had excessive diarrhoea, which in no way is ever good. Not on a bike. <laughs> not, <laughs> not on a bike. It is one of those sports, though, where there is a lot of toilet action on the way. Isn't There's it? a lot you of stuff going on. Jumping yeah. off the bike and it's, a, it's another reason in the to avoid bikes. <laughs> so, is there a job for that? Like a swan year? Somebody comes, comes past the light. <laughs> literally bringing up the rear. <laughs> um, no, no, stop. They just wee on themselves. He don't kept they? going, right? So, yeah. But anyway, he pushed himself to keep going. And not long after this, he collapses. 
and he falls off his bike, but then he gets back on and he drinks brandy to fortify himself because he, he's got excessive diarrhea and barely stay on his bike, so he drinks some brandy. <laughs> the second time he falls, he just doesn't get back up. So he falls uh, off his okay. bike and he's just lying there. They come and they airlift him off this mountain. He gets hospital, he dies soon after. And in his pockets, doctors find three empty vials and like a chemist's worth of pills, right? Yep. He's got everything in there. The post-mortem examination found both amphetamines and alcohol in his system. So he's just pushed his body and pushed his body and pushed his body until he just collapsed. I'm surprised the writers allowed the autopsy. Yeah, this, is, right. this is embarrassing that's to right. us and we refuse to undergo a postmortem. So this is like Britain's best rider. He's incredibly He's popular cooked. on the tour. He's died on the tour from drugs. Even the riders now can't it's fully. Okay. They, they can't. They published the results of the autopsy. Yeah, it was yeah. all known. So so at this point, the riders go, okay, we'll submit to drug testing. Mm. Right? They finally wake up to it. They realise they can't keep going. So in a way, while it's tragic, you'd think we at least got that through. Yeah. The thing is, you'd be surprised that even though that happens, they don't stop. What oh, happens yeah. here is drug testing becomes a real everyday thing. And so what happens is the modern day game of the Tour de France, which is how to avoid the drug tests how to avoid and the get around them. Not be there. So suddenly in the 70s, you start to see them all using drugs and positive tests are still very rare because the testing science isn't very good. So it's very easy to get around. Right. Writers right know if I dope from this day to this day, they won't come pick it up. If game I'm, the system. I can gain yeah. the system really easy, right? So they learn to do it and make sure it's cleared out of their system before it and it all works And what are we really talking about? Well. They're weighing in a test tube, is that it? Is yeah, it's just weighing in a test tube mainly. And, and, do, and one thing they also learn is they learn to substitute urine. So at first no one's watching them, they just use someone else's urine in a tube. Yeah. Then... They start being watched, but well, so you want to be careful who's you on you. Well, is it 1978? A Belgian rider. You wouldn't get top dollar for mine. <laughs> yeah, you're. Your interest once it had a head on it. That's right. <laughs> Seriously, get that down to forensics. Michel Polienta, he's one of the top riders. He's caught trying to deceive a drug test, and it's a huge story at the time. He's got the leader's yellow jersey at the end of stage 16. <laughs> he goes in to get drug tested. And they watch as you pass urine and he has rigged up a condom filled with someone else's urine <laughs> and placed it under his armpit with the tube going down inside <laughs> down to his fly. And so then he pulls the tube out and fills up the urine. But unfortunately for him, another rider had done the same thing early in the day and his had malfunctioned and urine had gone everywhere, <laughs> just started coming out of his armpit. Oh, that's Don't funny. you think in any phase of life, if you're starting to handle a lot of other people's urine... <laughs> Unless you're in the medical industry, it's no. time to... Did someone the, have a fake penis? Yeah, well, that's later on they do, they get more sophisticated. But this was kind of like that, right? He gets kicked off the tour and now it's seen like drugs are a thing, someone's been yeah. banned for them, it's all a bad thing. So it's not a, a wake-up moment. They all start to go, oh, we better get better at doing this. So suddenly by the 80s, it's a science. Teams have got doctors travelling with them, they've got drips to rehydrate them in the night, they've got centrifuges which clean riders' blood overnight. So they sit wow. there and it goes through the centrifuge, spins, cleans the blood, goes back into their bodies. Is this on like the team tests. bus or whatever yep. it is? yeah. Yep. Um, so a, a Tour de France's riders' hotel room in the 80s looks like an intensive care unit. <laughs> <laughs> like they are plugged in to like lots of things. So in 1991, the entire Dutch PDM tour goes down with a fever. Bad uh, fish okay, again. Yeah. There's televised images of all the riders shivering uncontrollably as they're helped back to their hotel. 
And once again, people are going, you yeah. know, the media wrote headlines, bad fish now because it's an in joke. They know it. Knowing fully these guys. Now, they blame the fact that they'd incorrectly given them something called intralipid. It's an extract of the soybean. It's not. It's technically legal. But to show you that they're pushing the boundaries of things, yes. it's meant to be a bad batch of it, it's usually used to feed comatose patients in Cromus. So even though it's like not a full, many didn't believe though that that was the reason of the fevers, right? Rumours just circled around saying, no, it's actually a human growth hormone. It's EPO. What's that doing? Tell me what that does. Well, it's one that um, it's made in a lab and it causes bone marrow to produce more red blood cells, which improves the body's ability to transport oxygen. It's often called a blood booster. So it just makes you carry. So a lot of people say- Does other sports do that? Lots of sports. That's a a very good one, EPO, you know, to use it and stuff. So there was rumours that it wasn't the intralipid, that it was actually EPO. And um, the entire PDM team, they quit the sport at the end of that tour because of this incident. Wow. And it's bought by a franchise, a Swiss watch brand bike called Festina. It becomes the Festina team because they're often named after sure. companies and stuff. In 1997, the rumours of that 1991 tour comes back when it's confirmed that they were taking... Um, EPO, and one of them came out and said the rule imposed on us by the directors of that team was there was to be no drug affairs, not no drug taking. So don't get caught. (laughs) (laughs) That's the general law of taking drugs, isn't it? So the arrival of EPO changes everything because they all suddenly start taking, like having season-long doping programs where they peak and take it down, come back up again. They start timing it around the Tour de France. It becomes they all have medical staff and everything. Then in 1993, a team doctor for a company called Guiz, Michelle Ferrari, who ends up working for Lance Armstrong in the future, he says in a TV interview, EPO is like orange juice, safe in moderation. And then he was shocked when the team fired him. <laughs> he, he shouldn't have worked too much because he ends up working for Lance Armstrong a uh, lot wow. longer. So before Lance Armstrong, and this is the thing that is the truly amazing thing of this whole story where we're going, is in early July 1998, so fairly recently, a guy called Willy Voet was driving across Europe on his way to Ireland because the Tour de France quite a few times in its history has started outside of France. Why do they do that? Just to spread the tour and make it more exciting and so they had a stage. So they had a stage that started in Ireland this year. But he is driving across France because it's going to start in a few days and he's driving the official car of the Festina cycling team. So this is the PDM team that got bought by Festina. And it's all decked out in the team logos. And he is the soigneur of this team. (laughs) And he looked after France's biggest cycling star, Richard Varinke, who's like the Lance Armstrong in terms of popularity in France at the time and seen as above reproach. Yep. He crosses the Belgium-French border and the customs officials seem for a first time in a long time with one of these to do their job and actually look in the car. They've started the Tour de France in Ireland. And he's in, trying to in get a to different Ireland. country. Yeah, so he's trying to get to Ireland. Knowing that they're all carrying. Yeah, so he's trying, to get to, ridiculous. he's trying to get to Ireland. He's driving from Belgium. He crosses into France. <laughs> they stop him and he's trying to get to Ireland and they stop him and his car's a pharmacy on wheels. It's, they discovered 235 doses of EPO, 82 <laughs> doses of the hormone sorotropine, 160 doses of pantestone, which is derivative of testosterone, and a wonderful assortment of steroids, amphetamine, syringes and tell other drug some, paraphernalia. Tell me some chloroform there, <laughs> please. <laughs> just... The customs officials say, I think this seems a lot for one person. <laughs> 
So they begin what an investigation. What is invest- wrong with this event? It's- so you've got to remember the, the tour itself is in Ireland. So this is, starts, this kicks off an investigation and no one knows about four, but the police and customs then raid the Festina officers of the team in Lyon. In Lyon. And they find more drugs and details on the computer and everything of this extensive doping right. program, yeah. right? In Ireland, the Tour de France has begun as if nothing's happened. There's rumours, hasn't been made the media yet, that there's been an arrest, but the Festina team just said to the media, that guy's a low-level person in our team. We don't even know who he is that well. Play so it. They play it off. The Tour comes back to France and all of a sudden the French police arrest Festina's sports director and their physician and start quizzing them. The Festina sports director, Bruno Rossell, he proves to be a poor member of a criminal conspiracy. <laughs> So he starts confessing that the t- straight away. The minute they interview him, he goes, I'll tell you everything you want to know. So he says, yep, we've got a systematic. He turns. Yeah, he just he turns goes, instantly though. Like they don't even. He gets a plea deal? I don't think he even gets offered a plea deal. He's just so freaked out. He goes, yep, we've got a systematic doping place in place. So they go and arrest the whole Festina team, all the riders, including the biggest cycling star, star in, in the world. The Tour de France director, Jean-Marie Leblanc, Mm-hmm. He's reeling from this, and suddenly the, he bans the Festina team. Which, since considering all nine riders are under arrest, is kind of he didn't want to do it, but his hands were tied. Yeah, he had to. Be so seen. police suddenly are running this investigation, and and for the first time ever in the history of France and the tour, they're not listening to the tour organisers. They're going, we're investigating yeah. this anyway. So they start raiding all the teams, like all the teams. Like this isn't just lands. This is the whole team. They're raiding. the tour management are watching it, and they're raiding their Computers, they're going to their hotels. All the riders are. What's, um, what are being the teams doing? Are they like shredding documents now? They're are they, pulling are out they, of the race. They're pulling uh, out. Like they start pulling out. Like all they start pulling out. They start shredding documents. Under the questioning in the Festina of the nine riders, all except Richard Verinke and Pascal Hervé admit to doping. They all say, "Yeah, we're doing. It's true." Verinke comes out and says, "Nah, I does a media conference and says I'm totally innocent. This is all made up." <laughs> Right. Bats, I'm covered in bats. Festina writer Alex Zul recalls being interviewed by police. He says, in the beginning the officials were friendly, but then the horror show began. <laughs> I was put in an isolation cell and had to strip naked. They inspected every cavity. <laughs> the next morning they confronted me with compromising documents they had found. They said that they were used to seeing hardened criminals in the chair I was sitting on. I wanted out of that hellhole, so I confessed. <laughs> so they're not exactly wow. standing up. No. Any sense it was just the Festina team quickly drops um, <laughs> away because suddenly the police start investigating. They remember, and the police had conveniently forgotten this, that they'd pulled over another team car for a TVM from the Netherlands earlier in the year and had stopped investigating and went, we better go back and investigate Have a look that, at that one and yeah. find out that it's also full of 140 vials of EPO in the car. So this is while the race is, is on. on. The race is on, right? So the This cha- is a so they, yeah, This so is a full this blown is a full catastrophe. Every now. team, like this is like way bigger. It's called the Festina Affair, but it's it starts to spread out. There was a rest day in the tour. The police sweep on the hotel where TVM is staying. They arrest a bunch of the doctor, their team manager. In the team's hotel, they find drugs and masking agents and EPO and syringes and everything. One of the TVM team members says to the media, the police are acting like Nazis. This is in France. 
France. <laughs> Not exactly the most sensitive comment in France. It's out of control. The police then send six of the TVM riders to hospital for blood and urine hair tests. So TVM pulls out of the race. They say we're out. So Fistina are out, TVM are race. They've gone. So there's two teams going. That's an admission of guilt. Pretty really, much. We they're need, all, we some of them, some of the individual riders are denying it and others are. But the team's going, we're cooked. The other riders and the other teams, they react to these raids like the introduction of doping tests. They protest. They don't say... This is a witch hunt. They go on strike for two hours and refuse to race. That doesn't stop. The police still go after all the leads. They then stage another protest a few days later, cycling slowly before stopping completely, and they whole field threatened to pull out of the entire race. So every team says we're going to pull out unless the police stop investigating this. The organisers cancel the stage and they say, right. The problem is the organisers can't stop the police because it's a police investigation. investigation. And the media know all about it and everything. And they start to, the police go, we don't really care if you stop the race. Like, it's up to you. So then the police start raiding the hotels of um, Team Once, Team Polite, La Francois, Desu, Lotto and Casino. So they they go in and they arrest heap of the guys in that and begin. And so suddenly teams are pulling out Left, right, right and centre there. Gotcha. Like teams that once sports director Manlo says announced his team was leading and he said they were sick of the dawn raids and that had become by the third week of the 1998 tour as common. He says... <laughs> oh. <laughs> so he says, I'm, we're leaving, we're sick because the, the police are literally raiding hotels all the time of the riders and he says to the media... We're leaving, we're going home. He's a director of Spanish team. He says to the media, I have shoved my finger up the tour's ass <laughs> and returns to Spain. <laughs> all the Spanish teams then Fair follow. enough all, too. All the Spanish teams reckon. follow suit and quit the tour. They all quit. So teams are dropping around. Like of the 189 riders that started the tour, fewer than 100 are left. Yeah. Uh, finally, they did finish the race and the Italian Marco Pantani wins, right? Now his... Victory was slightly overshadowed by this whole Festina affair of everyone quitting and all yeah. the drugs and the charges yes. and everything, but he did win. It keeps escalating. Now, he dies six years later of cocaine poisoning, aged just 34, and in 2013 it was revealed that retroactive testing of his urine and blood samples showed that he was also using EPO during the 1998 right. tour. So even though he won, he, he was revealed to it. In the following, <laughs> after the, so the race is finished, the results of all the Festina riders become public and they've all tested positive for human growth hormone, amphetamines, steroids, cortisides and EPO. So it would be easy to lift what they didn't take. Yeah. The TVM <laughs> riders all return positive results as all. Well. So then it becomes a criminal trial. Can I ask, what's the public's mood? Well, a lot of the French though, cycling fans, Richard uh, Virenquay, he's saying, I am innocent. I am 100% innocent. Mm. And a lot of the French public believe him and they say this is a witch hunt after him. Right. He still denies it. And many of them are saying he's innocent and he goes to court because the Festina group and goes to media and he's called to the stand. And up until this point, he's got protesters out the front of the court on his side yeah. saying he's innocent. He's, a, he's finally got his day in court. The presiding magistrate begins by saying to, to Virenkay, do you accept this reality that you took doping products? And he says, yes. And and suddenly reverses his whole thing. He then what? says, What? He then says, I took EPO. He says, It was like a train going away from me. And if I didn't get on it, I'd be left behind. It was not cheating. I wanted to remain in the family. So he's like, So the sense of betrayal for the French. Why would you fans, go to 
all they dro- yeah, that yeah. Well, suddenly he's in a legal court and, and he knew they had all the evidence. He knew what was coming. He knew. And suddenly it's not just public saying they to it, the they media. They had his Swineri. <laughs> just before we go, we're about to call you Swineri. Okay, yeah, yeah you they got had me. His blood test. So this is this betrayal for all the French like cycling fans who's defended him. They just mm. are like, oh, my God. So it's just absolutely thing. This whole affair, the Festina affair, leads to the development of the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA. So it is single-handedly it's basically... It's fault. It was basically set up yep, in a response it to the It showed how sophisticated that doping had become and it was decided that there needed to be a world body to fight this thing. So it all came out <laughs> of the Festina affair. And it ripped cycling apart and you would think once again it would change the tour. Yeah. But we've learned that controversy never damages the tour. Now, amazingly, and this is the real amazing bit of this entire story. Sure. The Festine Affairs just happened. You've had Richard Verenkay go down after denying and denying. He ends up in court. Yep. Has to confess and he's ripped to shreds publicly. Watching this all happen is a young rider called Lance Armstrong who's recovering from chemotherapy at the time in 1998 and he is reporting on the race for an American TV Station. So he is a correspondent at the race watching yep. it happen. He watches all the Festina Fair go down, the raids, people being exposed, the people having to admit after lying. He watches this whole thing right up there close, the confession of Richard Varenke in yep. an embarrassing way. He looks at this and instead of reading it as a cautionary tale, he sees it as a how-to guide. <laughs> the very next year... He's writing this all down. 1999 the year after the Festina Affair, and it's called the Tour of Renewal by the tour organisers. Fresh start. It's the first victory by Lance Armstrong of his seven consecutive victories the very next year. They just kept coming. It just never, ever stops. So when people say, this is amazing, if you've heard of Lance Armstrong but don't know about the Festina Affair, the Festina Affair, Lance Armstrong watches, sees it all happen, and does it the very next year and the first and goes on to win the next seven. So after the first century, the next seven are tainted by Lance Armstrong. This is an incredible story. It just keeps coming. And, of course, Lance Armstrong, we, we that, That's we another know. day. We it's might it's, an, it's the another whole, whole day. One, but. My takeaways from this episode <laughs> is I just can't stop thinking about having a Swaneri. <laughs> I just... But having everyone know this is the bloke who's... This is the guy organising my... And the rest day. You mentioned a rest day. How, how, how common is that? Well, they have two over the course of all the 21 days, so you get two rest days. But you, you think about it, Lance Armstrong watched Varenke go down <sighs> and you would think to anyone that would be like, well, I might... Mental I note, might give that a miss. But it just no. never stopped. And that's the Tour de France. That was awesome. I can't wait to continue watching the Tour de France. Uh, the Tour just... de France? <laughs> Surely they've got another chapter in them. Thank you. If you want more Sports Bazaar, simply go to any of our socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. We've got the whole lot. And we also have Bazaar Plus, our membership program, where you can get even more content. The link to that is just in the show notes. Cheers.